Well, this morning we return to the book of Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 21 through 23 there. So here God's word says to us, after they, that being Paul and Barnabas, after they had preached the gospel in, <clears throat> to that city, that would be Derby, they had made many disciples and they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So in, here, in, in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, we have right here, uh, again, just a few little uh, small verses here, but there's a lot of wonderful practical aspects we can pull from these few verses, particularly regarding our missions mandate, and that's exactly what every local church has. It's just that, a missions mandate. And uh, um, intertwined in our missions mandate as a, a visible church here of the Lord Jesus Christ here on this earth, on this terrestrial ball, we have that. It's part of our DNA. It's part of our calling as a gathered body of believers in Jesus Christ. We have the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission is our mandate from the Lord. And within the Great Commission, there's this reality of seeing a local church planted in various places all over the globe and for our role in doing so. So here we find some wonderful practical aspects in these few little verses of church planting and how that is inextricably linked into our mandate of making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded us. That comes in a context, and that context is always, ultimately, centered in the local church. Church planning is part of our identity, part of our DNA. So I'm going to try to draw out a few practical aspects here from these few verses regarding church planning and our... um, mandate to participate in it and so these uh the missionary endeavor and the very impulse of that endeavor is vital to the life of the visible church and church planning comes as a central component of that reality so here this passage is going to tell us a few things about church planning and how it fits into that missionary endeavor we can find that we can draw that from these few verses here so paul and barnabas if you recall, they've been in Derby, right? So in Derby, they kind of, there is the, the, the final outpost of their first missionary journey. So that's the outer edge, the outer realm. That's where they stop in Derby. And they spend a little more time there. Here, if you look there, the way the language comes to us in verse 21, it says, After they had preached the gospel in that city, that being Derby, they had made many disciples, and then they returned to Lystra. Iconium and Antioch. So they made many disciples and they stayed there for a period of time. Remember, Paul goes back after being stoned. He goes back with Barnabas into the city. Well, there's a practical reason for that. They planted a church there and they're not going back. So they spend a little more time there. But then what we find out is that they're going to return to the previous stops where they did plant other churches and they're going to spend some time uh, again revisiting churches and we're going to see why. Very practical uh, ministry aspects there. But here in Derby, 
it says at the beginning there they made many disciples and so they spend a lot of time there because they're not going to return that's the final leg if you will so now they're going to reverse course and go back and visit all these places where they planted churches prior so they've reached the geographical end range and now they're going to circle back and then that'll be the final leg of their first um, missionary journey and they go back through Lystra Iconium and then Antioch and that's Pisden Antioch, right? Not back to their home uh, church where, they, where they're planting out of. So this is back to where they first planted. Now, this is a strategic and dangerous final leg of their first missionary journey. And I say that because they have a very specific purpose in going back, and we'll see that in the text, but it's also dangerous. Why? Why, was it, why would it be dangerous? Exactly. Particularly the first two areas, uh, Antioch and Iconium, Jewish leadership there pursued them all the way to Derby with evil intentions, right? With violent intentions. And so now, if you will, Paul and Barnabas are going back into the proverbial hornet's nest. They're returning to these places where they were, they were chased out of town and their lives were on the line. And not just that, they were pursued all the way to Derby by some of, these, some of the Jewish leadership in these areas that were intent on killing them. And we see there in Derby where they finally tracked them down and they thought they had done just that with Paul. They stoned him and left him for dead. So they're going right back into the hotbed of where their lives had been not only threatened, but attempts had been made. And these folks were um, aggressive enough to pursue them, to, to leave their, uh, their lives behind and track these men down. So now they're, going, they're making it easy for them, right? They're just returning back to the same old places where they planted these churches. So it's a dangerous, dangerous proposition here. But that brings us to the first point I want you to see, and that is fortifying disciples there in verses 21 and 22 and so they had preached the gospel there and they're uh, in derby and they're heading back to these areas and verse 22 tells us why here's the goal here's the purpose to strengthen the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of heaven so i want you to note up front here that perseverance of the saints is a visible tangible testimony of saving faith visible tangible testimony of saving faith so they're retracing their steps here and this was a very courageous act but it's something they see as vital this is something that must be done it's not optional for their understanding of their mission mandate and what it means to truly plant these churches why the journey is dangerous the journey is the journey is going to be hostile but they go anyway And there's a purpose for it. So why do they consider this revisiting of these churches essential? Why? Well, it tells us here in Scripture, right? They must strengthen the disciples. That's essential for a a church plant. A church plant must have the disciples strengthened. That's essential for all churches, right? They They must be strengthened. And then it's to encourage them to continue in the faith. They must be encouraged of the, of the theological reality of perseverance of the saints. They must be encouraged that they must continue in the faith. To fall away from the faith 
is not to merely, if you will, in our modern uh, language, to backslide. Now, we would have, we, there might be a right place to use that language in an appropriate context and a right understanding, uh, but to have it thrown around loosely and just in a tense that you can wander off to the world and live there after making a profession of faith or some kind of visible or emotional uh, combination of things that uh, identifies you with the church and believe that you're remaining in the faith is a falsehood. So this is the encouragement They must be strengthened. They must understand that if you are to really enter the kingdom of God, it will be through great tribulations and it will be through continuing in the faith. And there's an element there of a necessity of being strengthened for these realities. Their souls need to be strengthened. Why? Because they have a great enemy, right? The same is true for us. Satan is a real and present enemy of the church, of the body of Jesus Christ. He has a purpose, an intent for you. It's to assault your soul. If you're here as a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ, Satan, the evil one, intends to assault your soul. He has bad intentions for your Christian life. The Christian life is a dogfight to the bitter end. It's going to be filled with tribulation, difficulties, obstacles, resistance. And Paul and Barnabas know well that these young disciples must have this reality grounded in their identity as Christians. It's not going to be smooth sailing all the way to glory. That's not the reality of the Christian life. And so they have to be strengthened in their faith. Their soul must be strengthened for the fight. They have to be made fit for the fight, the spiritual fight, the reality of what the Christian life is truly like. And so it's necessary. Uh, we had our, um, our annual Chris giving or thanksmas. Does it alternate each year, or do, uh, what, is, there, is that definitive? What do we go with that? Or is it just is it just a choice? Well, we had the meal. Okay, Chris Giving. So we had Chris Giving uh, uh, this past week, and uh, on last week, and it was glorious, and it was wonderful. And Danny had set up a little uh, challenge, I believe Danny uh, uh, worded it that way, for folks to take a verse and maybe uh, then uh, share that verse with us and, and talk about how that... Um, brought some, you know, a thankfulness to their hearts. And so a conversation uh, unraveled after that, and, and many folks were sharing things just about the Christian life and our experiences here, and, uh, and so just a little bit of open sharing. And I, and I was just captured by how much of it was based around um, <clears throat> this reality of, of the ease with which Christians in our context can kind of slumber in the faith. We're so easily distracted. We talked, there was a lot of conversation about how many things in our culture are readily available to distract us from our calling, from the, necess- the necessity of being strengthened in the faith for the reality of what the Christian life is. And there was a lot of recognition of that, just the, the numerous distractions and comfort of life and ease and, and um, opportunity to flourish in a very superficial way is 
quite an instrument for the evil one to bring to bear against us. And that's exactly true. And I bring this up just to simply say this. The evil one is always waging war against your soul. Always. And so spiritual warfare is just a reality of the Christian life. It will be so from beginning to end. Here we have very young Christians, and they've, been, they've come to faith here in a pretty hostile environment. It's a tumultuous setting. But the reality is they, they will be at spiritual warfare from the very beginning of their Christian life all the way to the point that God brings them home. And the same is true for you. Now, it may be going on in a very superficially cushy environment. You don't have direct persecution. And we talked about that. You have lots of distraction. It's the same thing, just different approach. You with me? The warfare is no different. The assault on your soul is no different. It's just different tactics. And those can vary. But we have to be strengthened for the fight, just as these young Christians had to be strengthened for the fight. The Christian life is a battle, beginning to end. And so the Christians here <coughs> that have been gathered in church, these churches must be equipped. And they must be equipped to resist the onslaught of this spiritual battle. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13 speaks to it well. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of the wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So verse 22 tells us the soul is to be strengthened and we're to be encouraged to continue in the faith because there's going to be tribulation throughout the Christian life. The Christians must have their souls strengthened. They must persevere in the faith that is necessary for salvation. If there is no perseverance in the faith, there is no genuine salvation. That's what's being communicated here. So if we do not continue in the faith, we have not truly been reconciled. That's what the language of perseverance of the saints means. It's that if, there is a, if one is a true, genuine follower of, Christian, of, of, of Christ, that one will indeed persevere. Now, they may be, there, there will be great tribulation. They could come in a myriad of ways. But the perseverance will indeed be so. Perseverance is a reality of genuine saving faith. So what I'm saying here is the notion that, that sometimes arises in our context, maybe not only ours, but certainly in our context. We've all, uh, I, I, I believe, at some of either secondary or, 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 or directly, have been affected by people making profession of faith and being sometimes very uh, um, zealous, but over time wandering away from the faith and living for the world, but will uh, never dawning the doors of the church ever, never 
spending any time with the body of Christ, never edifying the brotherhood, never sitting under the authority of the leaders of a local church family. And yet, in the conversation, out in the world, as they live for the world, as they live in open sin, what's the, what's the, what's the, always, what's the conversation about their, 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 eternal, their eternal state? What is it? I'm saved. Why? That day I had that experience. That day I asked Jesus into my heart. That day I made a profession of faith. Or possibly even followed up with baptism. Or I was, I was made a member of a church. Or a, or a combination of all three. But they have walked away from the faith. And what is missing in their life is this perseverance in the faith. And we'll get to this in a moment. But that perseverance in the faith has a direct identity to the visible church. Let me put it like this up front. We'll talk about it a little more as we get through the text. But to walk away from the church is to walk away from the faith. Scripture gives us no other options. So there's, not, there's no reality of genuine saving faith with one who has had some kind of experience tying their, their salvation to either uh, a profession of faith or a baptism or a membership or some uh, grand experience or any combination of, of, of uh, these elements, but will live in sin, in the world, for the world, and never identify with the body of Christ. Scripture calls that a walking away from the faith and rejects that as a lifestyle that is persevering as a saint. So here we are called to persevere. We are called to continue in the faith. And to understand the severity of that as tribulations will come. Louis Burkhoff put it like this, referring to the perseverance of the saints. It's that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. Now, I'll give you a verse that kind of comes from the negative side. As if one were walking away, one is not a believer. That's John eight thirty one. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed, now this was a profession, who had believed, and here's what he says about their profession. If you what? Continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You see the standard? Danny talked to us this morning a lot about the standard, right? About the importance of objective standard of God's word as opposed to subjective standards of, of our emotions. Well, now Jesus just lays down an objective standard for us. True, genuine followers of Jesus Christ continue in the Word. In other words, continue in obedience to Christ, which drives them to the Word. The Word becomes their standard. That's a true disciple. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in me will complete it by the day of Christ. So if there is genuine salvation the Holy Spirit truly indwells genuine believers, then there's going to be perseverance. Do you see that? If someone is genuinely saved, there will be perseverance. But it has a means. It has a context. And that means is identification with 
the church, the visible church, yielding to Scripture, and Scripture being the authority of one's life, and that being fleshed out within the body of Christ. Colossians 1, 21-23. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet He, <coughs> he has now reconciled you in His body of flesh through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond, and beyond reproach if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, am made a minister. Do you see how he connects it? Do you see the link there? Now, you're saying, well, Brother John, you said if, if, if one is truly saved, then he, he or she will persevere. Yes, that's true. And Burkhoff just laid that out for us. If we persevere, it's not by our striving to kind of uh, hang on to our salvation. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. God grants us capacity to continue in the faith because it's God doing that work within us. God keeps us persevering in the faith. Yes. Now, are we accountable? Do you have a role? Well, yes, you do. Well, that says, well, then, then that kind of defeats the reality of, of God doing the work. Well, no. God does the work. It's not your work. You can't keep yourself in the faith. And again, um, we'll talk here, and, and the conversation has come up this way, and I believe it's true. This, you know, folks will say, well, you know, if it was up to me, I would lose my faith. If I could do it, I'd find a way to lose it. And that's true. But we can't. If you're a Christian, if you're a genuine Christian, you can't lose your faith. The Holy Spirit will cause you and enable you to persevere. The Holy Spirit will do the work of perseverance in your life. But you are accountable. You're accountable. As a Christian, you will meet your God one day. And you will give an account of your Christian life. I will give an account of my Christian life. And we'll give an account of our obedience as those whom the Holy Spirit causes to persevere. Our perseverance, our response, our hunger, our desire to be filled, to walk in righteousness, is worship. That's exactly what it is. It's worship. And we're accountable for our worship. Can we, can true Christians ever fall away? No. Will the Holy Spirit see true Christians through to the very end and that we persevere? Yes. Are we accountable before God for our behavior, for our thoughts, for our actions, for our desires, for our passions? Yes. And we give account. In that regard, both are true. Our feet, if you will, have been placed on the narrow path, and that path is replete with tribulation, and we will endure to enter the kingdom. But every step of the way is a dogfight and we are accountable. Can you hold the two together? Because that's exactly what Scripture gives you. Both are true. So there's no hope in baptism. There's no hope in church membership. There's no hope in experience. We must persevere in the faith. That is our hope of salvation. Least we have no real saving faith. No perseverance, no genuine saving faith. 
So how do we think about this in terms of application for our lives? Well, um, straightforwardly, here, the text, we're, it, the Holy Spirit is, is teaching us here through the journey of Paul and Barnabas, teaching us the reality of perseverance. They're teaching it. They're going back through these churches where they have everything within their, their mental faculties, everything within their human nature says, don't go back. But they must go back. Because what has to be taught there is vital. And what the scriptures say that they must go back and teach. They must teach them that they have to be strengthened for a spiritual battle. They have to persevere in the faith. And they have to understand that there will be tribulation. Those are vital realities for the Christian church. For every church plant and for every church period. That includes us. So what do we do? What do we do with this reality? Well... We teach perseverance. That's what we do. Salvation is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not pray a prayer and live for the world and still continue to believe that you are in a right relationship with your God. That's a lie. That's unbiblical. Salvation is not external religious acts, experiences, or religious rituals that you possess and never changes your life. Amen? It's none of that, ever. It's never external. It's never an act. It's never something that you can lay hold on and have according to your own faculties and capacity and do what you will with it and never have it absolutely, radically change every part of your life. That's not saving faith. It's not external. Salvation is a relationship with the triune God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is having Jesus Christ apply His saving blood to your life. It's having Him apply His atoning work purchased on the cross where he bore the sin debt of all his people, bearing the white-hot righteous wrath of God the Father on behalf of those who repent and believe on him. And there he imputes his righteousness into their account, declaring them justified before a holy God. It's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that stands as a substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice for those who repent, turn from their sin, and believe on Christ and Christ alone. And those who turn from their religious efforts or their works of righteousness according to their own uh, uh, notions of, of, of righteousness or working their way to God or whatever the case may be, they turn from sin, the sin, and trust in Christ alone. That reality, that saving relationship with a triune God through the atoning work of Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, that reality is saving grace. It's internal, it's holistic, and it changes everything about you. Amen? Everything. It's a relationship with Christ that brings you into a relationship also with His people. I can't say this clear enough because our external, superficial Christian 
climate that, again, is declining somewhat in our ever-increasing secular culture. But our external Christian uh, climate has just embraced the notion that people are good with God because they've made some profession of faith and they never identify with the visible church. And Scripture just does not give that to us. It tells us something absolutely contrary to that. If there's no identification with the church, there's, that's a clear sign of no genuine saving faith. When the Holy Spirit saves you, when the Holy Spirit quickens you from spiritual death to spiritual life based on the atoning work of Jesus Christ that is applied to your life holistically, fully, that changes you completely from the inside out. It changes everything about you and makes you right with the Holy God and changes your heart's desires. Where you no longer desire to live for yourself, whether it's even with, uh, under religious principles that you've set up for yourself, but you no longer desire that. You desire to love and adore and worship your God and live in obedience to Christ. When that happens, when that true heart change happens, when there's a heart transplant where the Spirit of God takes out that old heart of stone and then get, does heart surgery on you and replaces it with a heart of flesh pulsating for the glory of your God that has reconciled you to Himself when you did not deserve it. When what you did deserve was a literal hell and a, a condemnation forever, eternally. Yet by His grace, He saved you out and made you His own. When that happens, your life has changed completely. And you're united with Christ. And when you're united with Christ, He unites you with His people. Period. Nothing about your Christian life ever changes. Nothing about your redeemed life. Nothing about your reconciled life ever changes. United to Christ is scripturally united to His people. There's no other option. There's no other reality. And we as His people who love others and are concerned about their soul cannot just simply sit by and nod our heads because it's uncomfortable to say no. No. You're living a lie. You know nothing about the love of God's people. You know nothing about identifying with God's people. I mean, because you know nothing about loving God because you're outside of the faith. Your life is not a life of perseverance in the faith. If we've been made in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then we have been put in relationship with His people. That's the reality. The responsibility to nurture that relationship is an act of worship. And it does not take place in individuals who have no concern or no desire to be part of the body of Christ. Walking from the body of Christ is walking from the faith. But lastly here, we do see the appointing of elders. And I want to take a moment to just maybe look at a, a, some practical matters there in verse 23. So it's essential uh, that, that they're strengthened, uh, that, that they're reminded and encouraged of the reality of Persevering in the faith. It's a necessity. It's, it's, it's part of Christian life. There's no other option. A true Christian will persevere in the faith. And then the reminder, the sober reminder of the tribulation that comes with the Christian life. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be full 
of hardship and obstacles. But that's part of the perseverance. And then it says there, after they've been given these necessary instructions that are vital to the life of a visible church here, it says that um, they appointed elders in verse 23. So when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed and fasted, they commended them to the Lord whom they had believed. So a couple things here I want you to note up front. Elders serve as a means of grace in that they help members persevere in the faith. Okay? And with that, I want you to also notice that um, the language here, they appointed elders, that's plural, and they appointed elders in every church. That's singular. So every church that was planted on the missionary journey, they go back, and after a period of time, they appoint elders. So something else worth to know up front is there were no elders for a while. And we'll talk about that. But they appoint elders, and they appoint a number of elders, plurality of elders, in each singular church, okay? And the appoint, those who appoint are Paul and Barnabas. So when we see the, the they in verse 23, when they had appointed elders, the antecedent goes all the way back to verse 21, after they had preached the gospel in that city. So all the action here is happening with Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas are the ones who appoint. That is to say, the church is not appointing elders here. Paul and Barnabas are appointing them. So means is taken to build up the spiritual health of these churches, and then elders are appointed. And note after this, the church is commended to the Lord. But I want you to see a connection here. I'm going to try to make a connection for you in, 22, in verse 22 and verse 23. You see there in verse 22, it says, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 23, they're commended to the Lord but that's after elders have been put in place. So this is the connection that I want you to see. These are folks that are commended to the Lord and that they're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's the picture. So we're talking about a body of believers. But in this, they make an important uh, 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 insertion here. They appoint elders. So elders are appointed as a part of this process. They're appointed for people that are entering the kingdom of heaven. They're appointed for those who have been commended to the Lord. So elders are a means of grace. The appointment of elders here in these churches is a means of grace. In other words, God intends and God's purposes for the church, there's an intention by God to use fallible men and a particular role, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be of good for the church. Actually, to be a means of grace and moving the body of Christ towards the kingdom of heaven. So there's a means. They're not the only means, but they're a very specific means of grace. So God works through elders, the appointment of elders, fallible men, weak, frail men, but enabled, equipped, and empowered by the Spirit of God, undergirded by prayer of the body of Christ, uh, apt to teach, 
that will be a means through which God will help the body of Christ persevere in the faith. You see the connection? You with me there? So this is good for the visible church. Now, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I want you to listen to this language of, of 28, 18 through 20. And here's really the great commission for us. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to follow all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the great commission. And elders are a means through which God fleshes out the great commission in the local church. Elders are a means through making disciples baptizing, and then teaching in the local church the body of Christ to obey all that God has commanded them. So they're put in place to be a means, an instrument through which God will work out the great commission in the local church. And that's exactly why Paul and Barnabas come back through and purposefully, with their lives on the line, put in elders. So they appoint them. Now, what about that? Well, the elders are there to teach doctrine that leads to godliness. They're uh, for strengthening. That's the purpose for uh, persevering in the faith. And they're an ongoing mark of progressing and saving faith. They're instruments to help uh, facilitate this reality within the church, which marks a visible church off as those who are entering the kingdom which marks us off as those who are, are fulfilling the Great Commission. So in every place that Paul planted a church, in every city that he ministered in, he planted, planted a church that's central to the Great Commission. So everywhere they went, they're carrying the gospel. They're fulfilling the Great Commission. So what do they do? They plant churches. What are we to do as we think about fulfilling the Great Commission here? Well... We plant churches. That's what we're to do. We're to plant churches. Everywhere they went, that was the case. And what, what are these churches, really? Well, that, that could go a myriad of ways, but they're, they're nothing less than this. They're an organized subset of the larger community. Now, a church is much more than that, but it's nothing less than that, an organized subset of the larger community. There's requirements to get in. Amen. And we've been working to flush that out and do that well here. We've, we've had our lumps, but we're, we're, that's, there, there's a purpose for that. There's a requirement to get in the church. You just don't waltz in and be part of the church. So there's a requirement. And you can be put out. There's a requirement to get in, and you can be put out. It's a body of believers. And these elders are to instruct the disciples there. They're to instruct them in their duty. So elders have a role in teaching the disciples there to obey everything that God has commanded them. And part of that duty that we have, that the elders are to instruct us in, is to commit to one another. And you see that all throughout the epistles. And the elders will continue to instruct the body of Christ to commit to one another. So let me take a moment of application here and say, commit yourselves one to another, to the brotherhood. The goal is to make disciples, to baptize them and to gather them into visible churches. That's the biblical model 
That's the mission mandate. That's the picture of church planting. So the church is central to the ministry of all disciples. So your ministry that will spill out of your life, what God's called you to, the context God has called you into, your workplace, wherever God's called you to be a light and to be a witness, it's never uh, cut off and, and sectioned off and set apart from your identity with the visible church, with the gathered church locally. And your unifying, uh, your unification with the local church. It's never separated. It's never segregated from that reality. So churches are planted here, but leaders are not appointed immediately, right? So these churches are existing without leaders. So up front, something we can learn right away is, is a local church can exist without elders, right? They did for a period of time. Actually, it's not, uh, 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 appointing elders is not the first thing on the list. So what do you think is first? Let's say Danny and I are jailed for an extended period of time. You choose the circumstances. Don't, don't get too creative. Don't break us out. Yeah, yeah, do bail us out. Let's say we're not here. The church exists. The church uh, shut the doors. No. Here we say, the, the elders, that's not even first on the agenda. Let me put it to you like this. The church continues. Before they had elders, what are they doing? What are we instructing the Scripture to do? Read the Word, sing the Word, pray the Word. The church could meet and do that in a very healthy way and maybe not even have a sermon taking place by one particular elder. Conversations, Bible studies, certainly. But the Word is foundational to the church existing, not the elders. Now, can a church exist long and flourish well according to Scripture without elders? Be careful. No, not if they're rightly appointed. So let me put it like this. Let me ask the question. Better to have no elders or better to appoint unqualified elders? Better to have no elders. It's not sinful to not have elders. Now, they need to come in time. But to rush them, to appoint them just to say you're appointing someone, that is sinful. And it's a corporate reality of that sin because it's a corporate picture. So there's time given here. There's elders that were being groomed and developed and naturally coming up through the ranks here. And when Paul and Barnabas get there, they appoint these men. Now, to that, to that language, they appoint them. That, Paul and Barnabas are the they. The church doesn't appoint them. So there wasn't a vote. Now, that's not to say that voting is sinful or wrong or inappropriate. What I'm trying to say here is there's a pattern. We're trying to follow it here. That's why I want to take a moment with this. These two missionaries, these two apostles, appoint the elders in all these churches. That's the language here. So they didn't put some men up, and that day when they meet and the church takes a vote, that's not what happened. They appointed them, and the church affirmed them at that time. That's why I've tried to bring up the language of affirmment, and I don't think I've done a good job with that. That's, people say it's too confusing. It sounds like just another word for voting. It's not. They put them forward. They appointed them, and the church affirmed them. Now, did they talk with the church? Did the church put these folks forward? Did the church recognize these men? 
beforehand? Were there conversations? Were there time to have some disagreement or concerns brought to rise before they appointed? Yes, of course. Of course there was. Now, how do I get that? Where do I get that? Well, they certainly were appointed here. And again, that's singular church, plural elders. And that's a New Testament pattern. You don't see a, a, a single elder appointed in any of the New Testament churches. You always see a plurality of elders. I'll give you one in, in Acts 20, 17. In Miletus, <clears throat> he sent word uh, to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Plural. No singular elder we see planted in the New Testament church. So I'm just saying here it's not wise. Again, is that sinful for a church to have a senior elder? Because we, we have that a lot around here. It's kind of tradition around here. So are we going to sit, get on our high horses and start condemning other brothers and sisters in the faith? No, we better not. But to have good conversations, healthy scriptural conversations, and to have uh, uh, um, loving hearts, and to, to nurture towards truth, and to have wisdom, yes. Is it sinful? No. Do we see it? Is it precedent? No. What we see is a plurality of elders in a single church. And what must they be? Well, they must be apt to teach. That's what makes them qualified men. And so what they did is they found qualified men apt to teach. Now, we do have brothers, again, brothers and sisters in the faith that, uh, uh, that are like-minded w- with us, and we have some differences, and, and all of us have holes. Uh, but there's folks that would hold to a, a notion of ruling, some kind of ruling elder, and then teaching elder. And that's just not, those two things are not parsed in Scripture. So for elders, what we find in Scripture is men who are apt to teach. This ruling notion, I think, is um, unhealthy and unwise and distracting for us. Uh, there's, the ruling is, is, is kind of carved out. It's not there. We're not, looking, we're not talking about ruling Elders are apt to teach. If you're going to be a qualified elder, you're going to be apt to teach. That's kind of the marker. Now, certainly, we see everything carved off there in, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. We see the character. We want that for all men. But that has to be there for elders, the character of elders, the kind of men that you would, that you would put in place, that the church would put in place. But they're apt to teach. So that's, that's the marker there. And where there's no... Where they're not apt to teach, then that's an unqualified elder. That's where we have to work on things and focus our attention. So these are qualified men, and they're part of the Great Commission, and there's no real distinction there, I would say, between that needs to be parsed there between ruling and teaching. Elders should teach. If you're not teaching, you shouldn't be an elder. But let me move on to, to that, and, and bring us back to that point in terms of, of their appointing. They laid hands on them. They set them apart for that particular service. That's an act of ordination. It's setting them apart to be elders where they're ordained. And the same would be true today. So when we see that for elders, when, we put, when we're setting them apart for ordination, that's the laying on of hands. That's kind of a visual picture for us. That's what we're doing there. That's to be ordained to be elders where they're ordained. So that doesn't carry, a, that doesn't carry a weight uh, two states over. All right? Still ordained, but you're ordained to be an elder where you were set apart. So the same would, we would do the same thing today. The same would hold true. But understand this. They talked to the church. 
The church was part of selecting these elders. The apostles appointed them, but the church was part. So there was no voting. And we've, we've had that come up, so I want to take this time, because here's scripture that we can just look at. So I want to take a little time here. So we've, had, we've struggled with that, and even the language of uh, affirming. No vote happened here when they were appointed. But certainly there's a background. There should be a background. There's always a background. That's when the work is done. That's what we're trying to cultivate here. The work is done. The body speaks. The elders come forth from the body. And then, if appropriate, the elders here will, will appoint them. And that should be true in all churches. Now, is the body involved there? Well, look at this. Think with me. Look at Matthew 18, 17. This is where there's a brother in sin. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, those who have come to him from the church, if he refuses to listen to them, what's, what's, the, what's the advice here? Tell who? The elders? Well, partly, but the church. Tell the church. We're, we're a priesthood of believers, right? That's exactly who we are. So the church definitely plays a role. The church has a part to play. It's just the appropriate approach is what we're after here. That's what I want you to see. 2 Colossians 2, 6-8. Uh, um, Sufficient for such a person is this punishment. Here again, one in, one in, in the church found in sin. What's the f- specific punishment? Uh, which was imposed by the majority. That's the church speaking. So there's a, a, a understood certain punishment for this person that was in open sin. And the church speaks to this. Yeah. I'm sorry. Second Corinthians, thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that. Yes, excuse me. Second Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. And so what do we do here when we think about this appointing of elders? Know that these, that these missionaries did it. Know that the apostles did it. Know that they addressed the church and dealt with the church beforehand. But when it comes time to appoint, the apostles in their authority appoint them. And then there's an affirmation. That work of bringing them forward, of recognizing them, of having the whole church involved, of dealing if there's questions or concerns, happened prior. You with me? That way you don't have a knee-jerk, one moment, one day ruckus. That's time to appoint. That happens from the leadership. But the cultivating of that happens prior. I know that's a little technical, and I know we bogged down here, but I hope it's fruitful for you. We've had struggles with that here already. And here it is in in the text, and that's why it works for us. We get to the text, and we just address it. Well, here you see it. This is what happens. This is what we're striving for. Not a power play, not, not a changing of one's traditions. We're not really worried about your tradition. We're worried about getting things right according to Scripture. Church always involved. The time to appoint comes from the authority of the elders, in this case, the apostles, and they appoint. There's a laying of hands and an ordaining for their service in those particular churches, and that's exactly what has transpired here. So Paul and Barnabas condemn them, uh, excuse me, commend them, that is the church, to the Lord. They're to persevere through the means of grace. One means of grace that we see appointed here in this text is elders. That's a means through which they are to persevere. That's why their elders have commended them to the Lord. The elders have commended the church to the Lord. So for us, we realize that our help comes from the Lord. That's who does it, right? It's not the elders. 
It's not our approach. It's not uh, how we've got our, our, our organization uh, skills on high alert. It's not that. It's the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. That's why they were commended to the Lord. So we give praise for the means of enabling grace. In this case, elders are a means. And we're to, to thank God for His provision. The visible church is the central means of persevering. So we give thanks there. It's the local church where true perseverance in the faith takes place. And elders are also a means within that process, within that context. And grace then is given within the church. Elders exhort disciples to read and pray. I don't know if that ever really seeks in enough. So let me follow the text here as an elder and say, read and pray. Study your scriptures and pray. That's how you will persevere well in the faith. Study your scriptures and pray. Least you fade away. Least you fade away. To walk from these means of grace is a mark of no salvation at all. To follow the world, um, I'll give you one context here that's just eating our churches away. Young folks, when you get ready to hit college, and for some reason college is just, in our culture, I'm not condemning one way or the other, but in our culture, college is essential. We just, we're, we just believe that that has to happen. I'm not, I'm not commenting on that. I'm just saying that's essential. So we're sending our kids, that's what I'm saying. We're sending our young folks there. That's what we're doing. We're going to do that. That's not going to stop. We're going to send them. And young folks are going to college and their minds are being poisoned quickly. And at that point in their life, they are walking away. I mean, you can mark it in space and time. At that point in their life, they are in the droves, walking away from the faith. They never affiliate themselves with a church body ever again. And all that they live for the world and all they ever hold on to is that one time somewhere when they were young that they, made, that they prayed a prayer. We have college students by the droves walking away from the faith. To move from the church is to move from Christ. Young people, when you hit college, to move from the church is to move from Christ. Scripture is very clear on this. And folks, we would do well to read and pray and nurture our young folks and prepare them for the assault of the world, particularly when they hit college. It's a sad, sad commentary on the local church to see folks at this age walk away repeatedly and never come back. So I'll hold there. I know we're, we're, we're out of time. And I know this was a little uh, technical at times. But there's no, there's no apologies for Scripture. I, I just I want us to take time here because we have a lovely little few verses here that speak a lot to, about where we are in terms of how we do things and why we do things. Um, and a great encouragement and a great warning here for us, okay? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for these verses. We thank you for the sobering reality of, of the tribulation that comes with the Christian life. The encouragement to be strengthened to the means that you have provided for us as your people uh, to persevere and to know that ultimately it is, it is your strength 
your enabling grace that grants us capacity, your enabling grace that sees us through, and there we can rest and rest firmly and rest sweetly, that it is you and you alone who has the power and the right and the authority and the grace and the majesty and the mercy to see your people through. And we thank you for that, and we hold on to our hope in Christ alone. And we ask that you would um, firm us up, equip us for the fighting, and that we would be sober, um, faithful, wise stewards of your gospel, and that we would be instruments of righteousness as um, we reflect your glory into the world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.